Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and the podcast founding editor. Today on the podcast, we're discussing augmentation of rotator cuff repairs. I'm honored and excited to be joined for this discussion by Dr. Patrick Denard from the Oregon Shoulder Institute. Dr. Denard has a worldwide reputation for excellence in shoulder surgery, having trained in fellowship under both Dr. Steve Burkhart and Dr. Gilles Walsh, and now has been in practice in his home state of Oregon for the last 11 years. In addition to publishing over 200 research articles, book chapters, and books, Dr. Denard is the director of the Oregon Shoulder Fellowship, a clinical associate professor at Washington State University, clinical instructor at the Oregon Health and Science University, and the chairman and founder of the Pinnacle Shoulder Meeting. Dr. Denard was the senior author on the infographic titled Dermal Allograft Augmentation for Rotator Cuff Tears, which was recently published in the November 2022 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Ignacio Pasqualini, Mariano Menendez, and Javier Artibal. Pat, congrats on your work and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on, Chris. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your practice, as well as your background in shoulder surgery, and what led to your particular interest in rotator cuff tear, pathology, and surgery? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I'm a native Oregonian, so for me, you know, after I trained in a fellowship with Steve and Jill, it was natural to come back to Oregon. My initial interest really was shoulder arthroscopy. I came to, you know, shoulder arthroplasty sort of secondarily, and... Uh, uh, rotator cuff, especially massive tears and irreparable tears, has really been a passion of mine since I was in training. Before we get into the specifics of this infographic and the technical aspects of this patch augmentation for these large and massive rotator cuff tears, I was hoping you could just briefly set the stage for us by reviewing, from a slightly larger perspective, your overall approach to the patient with the rotator cuff tear. Could you just discuss your evaluation, your counseling, and the decision-making thought process with respect to management? Uh, I wanted to hear about how and when you decide on surgical versus non-surgical treatments and how you manage patient expectations. Yeah, really good question, uh, complex topic. The biggest thing that I try to do is I try to match what the patient uh, wants or the patient expectations to what I can offer. I think that it's important you know, first of all, surgical, non-surgical, if it's a chronic tear, you know, we're almost always going to start non-surgical um, with these massive tears, especially if they're, you know, over the age of 60 to 65. I'm more apt to repair right out of the gate if they're acute tears. Um, but then when it comes down to the function, I kind of look at three broad categories. First of all, I look at the patient has any arthritis. Um, and what I'm looking for there is really asymmetric joint uh, space narrowing. The second category category I look at is their function. And if the patient has preserved overhead function or has pseudoparalysis but has had that for less than three months, so it's relatively acute, I'll be more apt to look at uh, arthroscopic or joint preservation options. And then the third category for me uh, is the tear pattern itself, uh, looking at it on MRI. And what I'm looking at there is the degree of retraction and the amount of fatty infiltration, which we're kind of going to get into later with the rotator cuff healing index. But generally speaking, I'll look at those big three categories. And if two out of the three favor joint preservation, I'll be looking at an arthroscopic uh, option 
uh, versus if two out of the three favor more arthroplasty, I'll look at more reversal arthroplasty, assuming we're going a surgical direction. So an example would be if somebody has maintained overhead function and no arthritis, that is, they don't have adaptive changes, et cetera, but they have uh, significant fatty infiltration, perhaps even some other irreparable signs, I'll still look at that patient as somebody who is a candidate for arthroscopy because they, are, they already have overhead function, right? Versus conversely, if they've been able to raise their arm for three months and they don't have arthritis, but they have all these other signs, I'll be thinking reverse shoulder arthroplasty. And that's really just trying to put together all these studies in a quick way to think about it. Um, and then from there, I'll match down into exactly what the patient uh, desires in terms of their specific function, et cetera. Sure. I think it's a wonderful approach to matching the patient with their needs. And as you said, you know, no two patients are the same and even the same, you know, age demographics and MRI appearances, you may have two totally different, you know, needs or, or, or desires from the patients who may have similar looking pathology. So, you know, really nice summary of kind of your thought process. I appreciate that. So your infographic acknowledged that these large and massive rotator cuff tears continue to be challenging for shoulder surgeons. Although there's varying definitions out there, could you just help define for us in your mind, what constitutes a large or a massive cuff tear and then explain the specific challenges treating that particular subset of patients and why we're here discussing repair augmentation in the first place. Right. So massive is the easiest because it's five centimeters or greater or complete two tendon if you use the, the Gerber definition. So complete supraspinous, infraspinous technically would be a massive tear or complete supra subscap uh, would be a, a massive tear if you're involving all of the tendon insertion. Um, large, we typically will use the, you know, the co-field definition uh, where they categorize that as three to five centimeters. So um, anything we're talking about for this purposes, large and massive, would essentially be three centimeters or greater. Um, or complete two tendon tear. The challenge with these obviously is healing uh, because most of these tears are going to be chronic tears and most of them are going to be associated with fat infiltration. You'll have the rare massive tear where somebody falls and you know has an acute rupture and, and I think those fall into a different category but most of these are going to be associated with retraction and fat infiltration due to their chronicity. So given that you mentioned the challenge is healing and we know that there's varying levels of healing rates and functional outcomes associated with surgical repair of these large and massive tears. You referenced several surgical technique advances that have been developed to attempt to improve our outcomes. Can you just briefly review for us what tools we have at our disposal to enhance the surgical repair of these cuff tears in general, and then specifically which work best for you for these large and massive tears? Yeah, I think you have to look at this from multiple vantage points, right? First of all, uh, there's the patient themselves, and we don't talk about it as much, but is there anything we can do to optimize um, their biology um, out of the gate? One of the things I like to do, especially if it's a scheduled surgery, is make sure the patient is on vitamin D because there's some evidence that that may help. You know, secondly, when I go in and do the, the surgery, then I have the technical factors that I can uh, control. So what I will commonly do in a massive or large and massive tear is use ripstop configurations. Uh, we described the load sharing ripstop technique, for instance, years ago that we use for patients who have less tendon mobility 
um, which are typically only amenable to a single wheel repair, but we'll try to enhance the repair by using ripstop configuration. And then you get to the biology aspect, um, and that's really where we've been using more of that in recent years. Um, we've used PRP uh, for years in large and massive tears, but the benefit of there is uh, it's there, but it's it's on the marginal side. So it's not going to take somebody from a 10% chance of healing up to a 90% chance. It's really only going to make a small difference. So that's where we've moved into using dermal allograft augmentation to try to improve pull-out strength and perhaps improve the biological environment. And lastly, I think you need to be thinking about the rehab postoperatively because it's uh, we know that these tears have a, a poor chance of healing. So I think in particular with the large and massive tears, it's important to be conservative on the rehab side. So what I mean by that is typically these patients, are, for me, are going to be in a sling for six weeks with hand, wrist, and elbow motion only and not beginning passive range motion until uh, a six-week point. Uh, particularly these, these large massive tears, they do not get stiff uh, per se because their biological environment simply isn't what it is for a patient with a small tear. So you can get away with being more conservative in those cases. Yeah, that's interesting. Speaking now specifically to the patch augmentation of rotator cuff repairs, can you review for us what biomechanical studies are showing in terms of how they're performing compared to the isolated repair without the augment, as well as any clinical trials that report patient outcome measures uh, and how they're being used in vivo? Yeah, this is kind of interesting because this information has been available for quite some time. I and mean, there's a, you know, studies years ago out of the Mayo Clinic which showed that thermal allograft augmentation improves pullout strength when you pass when you pass uh, sutures through the dermal graft and then bring them out to the repair. And there's other studies that have supported that as well. And then clinically, one of the classic studies was by uh, Barber, and he looked at a series of rotator cuff tears and um, primarily large and massive tears and found that healing rates were in about the 30 to 40% range without the use of augmentation. Uh, but with augmentation, they improved about the 80% range. And that study, I believe, is almost 10 years old now. Um, but it's only been in the last couple of years that people have really started to use um, thermolograft augmentation more readily. And I think there's a, probably a couple of explanations for that. Uh, one is that I think that SCR actually sort of raised the bar of what we would do arthroscopically, um, and that's pushed us to better levels, whether or not SCR is beneficial or not. And, you know, there's a lot of debate there, but I think it certainly uh, raised our standard. And then secondly, the techniques um, have um, improved and become more easy to use dermal allograft augmentation. So for instance, with uh, techniques such as the Regenitin patch, which provided an easy way to do this onlay, uh, and then other uh, companies coming out with uh, similar sort of techniques that allow you to apply this in an online manner has really facilitated the use of dermalograft augmentation. Mm -hmm. So you referenced this earlier, and I'm glad you did because I want to discuss it now, uh, but you talked about the rotator cuff healing index as a way to potentially identify those patients who had an increased risk of rotator cuff retear can you just explain for us now what the index is, how we calculate it, and then how you apply it clinically? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, in clinic, I think we're always trying to do this, right? We're coming, we're trying to come up with these algorithms in our head and try to make a prediction if somebody's going to heal or not. Um, and what the rotator cuff healing index is just, it attempts to put this into a um, calculable form um, by creating a uh, scoring system. So Quan published in AJSM in 2019, looking at uh, over 500 patients who underwent arthroscopic rotator cuff repair and looked at their healing postoperatively. They came up with a rotator cuff healing index which assign points to several factors that we know are associated with healing, but they really just put this um, into an actual index scoring system. So, for instance, the factors that they looked at, uh, age over 70 gave a score of two points, AP tear size of 2.5 centimeters or greater was two points, and then retraction was up to four points based on the amount of retraction. Fatty infiltration, uh, grade two and higher of the infraspinatus was three points. Bone mineral density, osteoporotic would be two points. And then high work was two points. Um, it sounds like a lot, but uh, simply, uh, if you look at people with large and massive tears, so they're going to be a three centimeter tear retraction, that's four points. Uh, they're typically going to have an AP tear size of over 2.5 centimeters, which gives you another two points for six. And then most of these are chronic. So in the chronic setting, they're going to have three points for fat infiltration. So right there, there's nine points. So if you remember nothing else, if you have a large and massive tear with fat infiltration infraspinatus over two points, your score is about nine. And that's important because when you break down their healing percentages, you see that healing drops as the scores increase. Uh, particularly, they talked about patients with less than four points having uh, essentially over 90% chance of healing. But when it was over 10 points, it dropped down to about 14% of healing. When you substratify the scores, you really see a big drop off at about seven, uh, which is what we have done to try to give a guideline for people. So once you hit about seven, you drop off from a, about a 66% chance of healing to about a 33% chance of healing is a quick number. So I think that is a, a, a time to me that is an opportunity to potentially modulate the healing chance of that patient and do something else besides your standard repair techniques because that's where you're seeing the biggest drop off. Others have argued that, you know, even if you have a 10 or 20% chance of healing, you should consider using augmentation techniques. But for me, you have to really look at the overall cost benefit here. And I think uh, that's why I like uh, looking at that area of the, the seven points and greater is really considering use of advanced techniques such as dermatograft augmentation. Yeah, that was a great explanation. Thanks. Questions always remain with respect to treatment of the rotator cuff. What are, in your mind, what do you think is currently the most important unanswered question with respect to managing large or massive cuff tears? Or what do you see as the most important next step for advancement in this field? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, putting putting on that in one, I think, is really, really difficult because there's just really so many questions. You know, does SCR still have a role? Uh, for instance, we've seen a lot of uh, studies come out recently which showed poor healing rates with dermalograft augmentation, but is it just perhaps that we may need to be using uh, tensor fascia lata, as Mahata initially described? Um, there's been some interesting work in the biceps recently with regard to either using 
the biceps as augmentation or simply as Larry Fields describing transposing the biceps slightly more posterior and leaving it intact distally. But I think at the end of the day, for most of us, we're going to need algorithms like the rotator cuff healing index that are easier to use and perhaps even be automated. And that's where I would see, really see the biggest advancement where you would have somebody come in with some simple uh, questionnaires that they fill out and some demographic information and their MRI would give you some automatic information to give them a uh, patient-specific uh, probability of healing with different techniques. And if we could do something like that, I think it would be a real huge advancement benefit to our patients. Yeah, that's a great thought. Pat, any other closing remarks before we close out the podcast? I think we covered a lot there. So, no, just no, thanks for having me. And uh, let people know they can reach out to me anytime with questions. Appreciate that. Patrick, I want to congratulate you again on your work and thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts with all of us today. Dr. Denard's infographic titled Dermal Allograft Augmentation for Rotator Cuff Tears is currently available in the November 2022 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.